In popular memory and on the big screen, the First World War was fought in the mud of northern France, or maybe in the skies above it. But what about the war beyond the irreverently nicknamed trenches? I'm Lucy, and in this episode of Footnoting History, I'll be looking at the non-Western fronts of World War I. The ways in which the First World War was collectively and individually traumatic can hardly be overstated. But although even the name by which we know it indicates the conflict's global scale, images of this world war tend to concentrate on the scarred landscapes of northwestern Europe, sometimes even the same few miles of France and Belgium. In this podcast, I'll be taking a look at how the war was fought and remembered in other places, from the harbours of East Africa to the fields of Eastern Europe. The scope of the conflict owed much to the fact that it was an imperial war fought between transcontinental empires. The infamously narrow strips of blood and mud and metal on the Western Front were fought over not only for their own sakes, but also very much for the sake of which of the empires in the conflict would have the power to draw the maps of the future. The war began in East Africa, in fact, before hostilities were joined in Europe with the British bombing of a German radio station in Dar es Salaam. The European powers were divided between a reluctance to commit troops to the African front and a still deeper reluctance to let their rivals gain a more secure foothold in the lucrative continent. It was a German invasion of what is now Mozambique that drove Portugal to abandon its position of neutrality. White populations of distinct colonies tended to elide their differences at the call of empire. Most of the campaigns themselves, however, were fought by non-white troops. The monument to Askari troops in Nairobi boasts an inscription by none other than Rudyard Kipling, which concludes, quote, If you fight for your country, even if you die, your sons will remember your name, unquote. It appears in Swahili as well as English and was tailored to appeal to a local rather than imperial sense of legacy, it contrasts notably with the patriotic pieties of similar monuments erected in Britain. Their name liveth forevermore, dulce et decorum est, etc. But it also pinpoints a grim and obvious irony. While many of the Askari troops were indeed fighting on the soil and in defense of their homeland, they were fighting in a war between exploitative foreign powers. Kenyan scholar Lydia Waithira Muthuma has suggested that, since this monument preserves and heroizes a political minority, it deserves more intentional conservation than has hitherto been accorded it. In contrast with monuments affirming British imperial hegemony, it instead commemorates the agency, however fraught, of a minority. I should take a moment to observe that African troops in colonial armies were not a novelty, and many voluntarily became career soldiers in order to escape enslavement or better their social status. During the First World War, however, conscription would become the norm. Over one million African soldiers and carriers were mobilized for the war. Over 15% of those men died. Some conscripts were enlisted as a form of forced labor. Elsewhere, it was responded to as a matter of honor. Alaafin Ladegbolo of Oyo, for instance, told the British at the outset of the war that he, as chieftain, could guarantee 30,000 troops from among his people, and that the British should not treat this as an idle boast. 
The experiences of these conscripts, especially, would help to mobilize African nationalisms as a political movement in the period between the wars. The exploitation of African raw materials, taxation, and inflation all rose markedly during the war, rendering the cost of imperialism both more acute and more acutely visible, in all too stark contrast with the rhetoric of duty and solidarity binding the colonies to the nations at war. In Senegal and French West Africa, the military collaboration and conscription of African troops would be invoked in arguments for rights to French citizenship. Surprising exactly no one, these were withheld, because imperialism is terrible like that. Mobilization itself, at the outset of the war, had often been constructed as a moral duty of African rather than colonial patriotism. An editorial in the Nigerian Pioneer, for instance, wrote that, quote, the African is taught from early childhood the duty we owe one to the other. In times of sorrow and sadness, he shares in the grief of his neighbors. In times of distress and want, he is taught to contribute towards the relief of those affected, unquote. The ways in which imperialist agendas affected Africa during the First World War are particularly visible in Cameroon. A German possession since the infamous Berlin Conference, Cameroon was ruled ineffectively by an Anglo-French coalition following German defeat, and finally divided between British and French forces in 1916. The complexity of these imperial conflicts is indicated in part by the fact that Nigerian and Indian troops formed a significant part of the British forces in the Cameroon campaigns. Within Cameroon itself, certain tribes chose to ally themselves with the German army in hopes of preserving the status quo against violent and prolonged upheaval. In the aftermath of the war, while colonial infrastructure became even more dense, the lack of regard for African subjects and the potential for African political self-determination became increasingly matters at the forefront of debate. Similar dynamics were visible at play in Arab nations, in modern Saudi Arabia and Jordan, and not least in Iraq. Britain, France, and Germany all sought alliance with the Ottoman Empire at the war's outset, and scrambled to claim its former territories in the aftermath. The independence of Iraq, to take but one example, was fostered by the British as a way of protecting themselves from other imperial ambitions. During the war itself, the so-called Middle Eastern campaigns, so-called because they extended well into the Caucasus and Persia, commanded the largest geographic scope of any of the war's theaters. And it is worth noting that during the war and its immediate aftermath, this did command a more proportional place in the collective consciousness on various home fronts. How World War I, as it has been imagined, has narrowed to Flanders fields could be a subject for a podcast in its own right. But in multiple theaters of war, the conflicts of transnational empires inevitably created ethnically and religiously diverse armies. The clashes of imperial forces could become the pretext for acting on local rivalries and attempting to establish local dominance. Imperial actors themselves often portrayed the conflicts in these ancient landscapes in positively apocalyptic terms. T.E. Lawrence, admittedly a figure whose loyalties were complex, not to say ambivalent in the extreme, recounted the mining of a German railway as follows, quote, When the front driver of the second engine was on the bridge, I raised my hand to Salim. 
There followed a terrific roar, and the line vanished from sight behind a spouting column of black dust and smoke a hundred feet high and wide. Out of the darkness came shattering crashes and long, loud, metallic clangings of ripped steel with many lumps of iron and plate, while one entire wheel of a locomotive whirled up suddenly black out of the cloud against the sky and sailed musically over our heads to fall slowly and heavily into the desert behind." Unquote. This sinister and lyrical passage reads almost like creation in reverse. Lawrence recounts the subsequent slaughter via machine gun almost dispassionately, but also gives narrative space to the plundering, which Bedouin troops viewed as their just reward, and on the terror of the wounded refugees, and of the women who, it turned out, had been travelling on the train alongside its cargo of weapons and food and blankets underneath its nests of machine guns. It's a story in which Lawrence himself appears as a sort of anti-hero, in which, he seems to suggest, imperial rivalries must, inevitably, implicate and injure local populations. The Ottoman Empire, nominally the highest religious authority for Sunni Muslims, called a jihad against the British. It failed signally. Nationalism, rather than faith, proved to be the most powerful animating spark within this failing empire's territories, and indeed within those of its powerful rivals. In India, imperial and national identities were negotiated in ways remarkably diverse even for the subcontinent. While Indian soldiers fought in the Caucasus, in Egypt, and as far away as France, domestic political interests coalesced around the questions of what this service would mean for the men who undertook it, and what it should or could mean for the relationship of the British Empire to its Indian subjects. India was, of course, from the British perspective, the proverbial jewel in the crown, a geographical linchpin securing their power against Russian and Ottoman rivalries. With the disintegration of Ottoman power, the path to India lay open to Germany. This possibility was not a universally disturbing one. In Chotanagpur, the Kaiser was referred to as a father figure, a near deity who would liberate India and its peoples from the British yoke. Knowing the historical rapacity of the German Empire, this may strike us as shocking or even ludicrous. But it is not that the Indian populace was credulous or naive. Rather, in a society where most information was transmitted orally, rumor and legend used news from the distant battlegrounds to construct a myth surrounding a desired liberator. Ambivalence towards empire is also visible on Europe's eastern front. As both the Ottoman and the Austro-Hungarian empires came apart at the seams, what exactly this meant for the people and lands of Central Europe and Turkey was up for debate. For Russia, too, this front was part of an imperial story, at least at the outset, with newsreels recording Tsar Nicholas II inspecting his troops. The Russian army unraveled spectacularly, however. Horrendous losses were suffered, retrenchment became so habitual that it became known as the Great Retreat, and many men just decided to go home. If you've seen Dr. Zhivago, you may at least have some idea of the sheer confusion involved in this. In the Balkans and elsewhere in Eastern Europe, borders were up for grabs and refugees were everywhere. 
The ambivalence and diversity of local responses is reflected and refracted in contemporary cultures of memory surrounding the First World War. Did the fighting represent the last gasp of a noble empire? The birth of a new nation? A time of chaos best forgotten? Romania first entered the war in hopes of overthrowing the German Empire, and almost succeeded. Allegedly, at least, the Kaiser reacted to the news by exclaiming, The war is over! Romania's action was understood by Germany as nothing less than a betrayal of alliance, a betrayal explained by German authors as due to the pernicious influence of French culture, luxurious, elitist, and immoral, rather than, say, that of the Ottoman Empire. With no fewer than four empires in freefall, Central and Eastern Europe became what one historian has called a shatter zone. Some towns in what is now Ukraine changed hands as many as 20 times. Joachim von Putkana has wryly observed that the immediate legacy of the First World War in Eastern Europe appears to be, quote, a nearly impenetrable jungle of overlapping revolutions and national conflicts, unquote. Without the stable coalitions of the Western Front, the violence was still more chaotic and arguably more extreme. And with empires in crisis, decisions about tactics and administration were often left to the armies themselves. The regional refugee crisis galvanized civilian action and social engagement in ways that accelerated the formation of national identities. However, as nation-states struggled towards formation in the aftermath of empire, ethnic tensions and ethnic violence rose sharply. Military occupation was the norm. The home front and the battlefront, in many places, blurred to the point of being indistinguishable. The attempts to recover from violence and to forge new identities in its aftermath created troubled legacies, and, in contrast to the English-speaking world, the conflict here was never touted as the war to end all wars. Obviously, this podcast has only begun to explore the complexities of how the First World War was fought and understood on multiple continents, as a conflict with global stakes. It has been my goal to show at least some of the scope of how the war was fought and imagined, and by whom. It is, obviously, a story dominated by imperial violence, but it is also a story of how, even in the midst of war, new ways of forging identity and forming societies could be imagined. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.